This series is called Cut It Off. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Glory be to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, now and always and unto the ages of all ages, Amen. This series is really inspired um, by these verses. I actually read them in the Gospel of Mark, which we're going to read next week, but intentionally I chose it from Matthew for the first week and the second and this second week. And Jesus says, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members should perish than your whole body be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Cast it from you. It is more profitable for you that one of your members should perish than that your whole body should be cast into hell. And some of Jesus' teachings seem a little bit hard to accept. I mean, you know, if, if heaven is this place full of people missing an eye and a hand and a leg, and, you know, then, like, like I, I don't know that I really want to, to, be, uh, to be in that place. I mean, it might be a great place, we were saying last week, for, like, a prosthetics, uh, you know, salesperson, right? <laughs> but for everybody, for the rest of us, you know, um, I, I don't get it. And then, really, what we're really actually talking about is prohibitions. Why does God have to say, don't do this, don't do that, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. Why, why can't everything just be good and everything be great? And this is all a review of last week. Like, like, why do I have to eat broccoli? Why can't I just eat chocolate all the time? You know, why can't it look like broccoli but have chocolate inside of it? You know, why can't it magically just all be chocolate right and and we have preconceived notions when we see the broccoli and we have preconceived notions when we see the chocolate we don't have to taste it you all have had a really good melt in your mouth extremely luscious and rich brownie and you all have had a dry hard as rock crusty old brownie as well right but but when we see this, we have like an expectation. We, we associate what we see or with what we think it ought to be, right? And that's what we talked about last week, that things are not always as they seem. Um, and we talked about, and I, I made it really like extreme, where I was talking about like, like, like flesh-eating bacteria and so on, and where, you know, if your arm had a, had a God forbid, had you know, was infected with this flesh-eating bacteria that could kill you within a number of hours, the only treatment to limit the carnage is actually amputation. And you would prefer the amputation, well, most people would prefer, of course, to each their own, than, than to die. And we were talking about that last week. And so this whole series is really inspired by this quote by St. John Chrysostom from his, um, from his, uh, his teaching on, on the book of Romans. And I tried to shorten it uh, for you, but every time I shortened it, it didn't make sense anymore. So it's gonna be three slides, just bear, bear with me. And he's just given lots of examples and, and uh, nothing complicated that you can't understand, especially in the context of last week if you were here, but if not, it'll still make sense. This is the kind of the foundational teaching for these three weeks, last week, this week, and the one to come. St. John is saying, Christ has killed and buried your former transgressions like worms. Worms in that they cause, they cause corruption, they cause things to rot, right? So he has taken away all of our former, our, our past sins 
like, like worms that cause corruption. How then is it that you have bred others? He's telling, he's telling his congregation. How did you grow more? For sins that harm the soul are more deadly than worms which harm the body, and they make a more offensive stench. Yet we do not even perceive their rankness, and so we sense no urgency to purge them out. And we were kind of joking about this last week when we were talking about, please pardon the analogy, I know it's, it's kind of stinky, about, you know, when, you know, why is it that everybody else stinks up the washroom more than I do, right? You know, when I use the washroom and I stink it up, it's like not a big deal, right? I can somehow get used to and tolerate my own stink. And that's what he's saying, right? Well, when it's somebody else's stink, it's like plain and obvious and it's like terrible, right? There's actually a whole bunch of research articles that I looked into, but we don't have time to cover them about why people think that other people's farts smell worse than theirs, <laughs> right? But uh, funny the things that you can research, eh? But anyways, right? And people give grants for this kind of stuff. What am I doing as a priest, <laughs> right? He goes on to say, so the drunkard, like the person who's given to drunkenness, the, the, the alcoholic, fails to recognize how disgusting stale wine is, while the one who is sober perceives the difference easily. So it is with sins. One who lives soberly sees easily the mire and the stain, but one who gives himself up to wickedness, like one made drowsy with drunkenness, does not even realize that he is ill. What he's saying here is that, and we gave this example last week, that like, you know the science experiment? I mean, who did this? This is so mean, right? Take a frog and put him in, in cold water on the stovetop and turn, the, turn, the, turn the, the, the heat up gradually. And the frog just hangs out in the water. He doesn't, re until he gets boiled alive. The changes in life sometimes are so gradual. That's another reason. Um, why we tolerate our own stink is sometimes sometimes a habit starts off as as just trying it once and then doing it twice and then it becomes every evening every evening i have to you know watch three hours of netflix otherwise i can't go to bed but it started off by watching one show once you know we talked about all kinds of different um you know maladaptive behaviors uh last uh, last week so i won't go into all of that again but that's what he's saying here this is the worst aspect of evil that it does not allow those who fall into it even to see the seriousness of their own diseased state but as they lie in the mire they think they're enjoying perfumes so as we lie mire is like uh mud and poo and you know like swamp you know so as they lie in the muck you know they think they're enjoying perfume because they don't know better and they don't know better because they've become so habituated to it you know and i stink up the washroom you know and then doing my thing and then i leave and then mary walks in, she's like oh what did you do in there right but I was like, I don't know. I just did like what normal people do when they go to the washroom. Like, you know, right? You know, but it wasn't so bad to me because I'm just lying 
in it, right? And he's saying this in regards to, remember, this is a commentary on what, what, what Jesus says. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it, cut it off, right? So they do not have the slightest inclination to free themselves because they're happy and they're happy. They're, they're like, a, like a pig in mud. They're happy, right? And when full of worms, they act like those who pride themselves in precious stones, exulting in them. For this reason, they not only have no will to kill them, the worms, the corruption, the, the sin, the mire, the muck that we're lying in, but they even nourish them and multiply them in themselves until they send them on to the worms of the age to come. He's talking about, he's talking about, he's talking about the judgment, right? And we've been talking about different aspects of, of, of this and different aspects of things that have become inherent to us, things that have become at home with us. I want you to think of something that is just normal to you, something which you would say belongs in your life, but maybe, just maybe, it doesn't. Today, I want to talk about that we have more than we need. Today's punchline is we actually have more than we need. From a theological perspective, this is one of the areas where Orthodox Christianity differs very much from Western Christianity. We're not, as Orthodox Christians, we're not looking, we're not out on a hunt to find what we're missing. We've realized actually God has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness, like St. Peter says in his epistle. But on top of that, I have piled my sins and on top of that, I've piled my bad habits and on top of that. So I actually have everything I need to live a full and glorious and divine life, literally a divine life on earth and in heaven. And then some, and then some. So you can say, well, what's the problem with that? Like I have everything I need and then some. I'll tell you what the problem with that is. And that's what we're going to be sharing about now. More is not better. Bigger is not better today. Less is more today. And what we need is to stop. What, what we don't need that we have in our life is holding us back. When I was um, 15 or something, I really got, or 16, or I can't remember, how, about 16, it was before I was like, before I was in college, I really got into go-kart racing. I went go-kart racing once, and uh, I loved it, right? And we just went, I just went with friends, and so I went back alone um, during the daytime, and the only people who were there were like the hardcore, like, go-kart racers, right? And so I, I raced them, and I lost. I was like, man, I'm going to get this, right? And I took some tips from the the guy who owned the racetrack, and, and I started winning, you know? And then I got to a point where I just, I just couldn't, there were a couple of people I just couldn't beat. So I was talking to the racetrack owner, I told him, I'm doing everything you're telling me, I'm going into my, I'm going into my turns slow and accelerating halfway out of them, you know, I'm this, I'm that, I'm staying on the inside, all these things. He says to me, you're not gonna, you, you don't wanna hear the advice I'm gonna give you. I was the fittest I've ever been in my life, I was like 16 or 17, I played lots of sports. He said to me, um, uh, the only thing that's going to help you now is like a little bit more practice, sure, but uh, you're just going to have to lose some weight. He goes, your cart is like really light and the heaviest thing in the cart is not the engine, it's actually you. Um, and uh, I was like something like 130 pounds or something. Like I, I, was, I, wasn't, I wasn't overweight, 
but he was telling me you're just gonna have to you're just gonna have to eat less and kind of starve yourself if you wanna if you wanna get a leg up. Look at all the guys who beat you. They're all even skinnier and shorter and smaller than you. They're just small guys, right? Um, what we're what the extra weight we're carrying is uh, holding us back. It's just holding us back. So there's this app called Let Go. You know, it's like uh, it's it's like Kijiji or Craigslist or whatever else other online classifieds. But but it's actually called Let Let Go. That's what it's called. And every time I see this, I say, but I don't want to. You know. Uh, and recently we were doing some renos, and Mary, you know, was on a rampage to empty our house so that we can get the renos done. And, and she keeps showing me things. She's like, I'm going to take this to, to, to the thrift store. And I'm like, I'm like, no, 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 I need that. She's like, for what? And I'm like, for this conversation. We wouldn't be having this conversation if it wasn't. There's no use to the thing, but I can't, I can't let it, I can't let it go. And apparently, um, so there's this show on Netflix, and apparently it's been around for a little bit longer by this Japanese lady called Marie Kondo. Maybe some of you are familiar. I wasn't until Mary kind of brought it to my attention and who this person is. She basically helps people to, to organize their homes and get rid of stuff. And she has this famous question that she asks people, does this give you joy? Do your drawers give you joy? Does, the, does this pencil give you joy? And all these things, right? And, and she has this very, like, you know, very simple system to, of how to declutter your life. Well, apparently, uh, a couple of months after her show was on Netflix, um, thrift store donations went through the roof. In fact, so much so it became a problem that many thrift stores didn't know what to do with the stuff. Some thrift stores had like 80% like off sales like continuously. Like they usually have a two-week sale once a year. They, they did it like and they just like they, they couldn't stop the sale because they need to get they need to move the stuff out of because people People have seem to have like an endless supply of stuff, stuff that they don't need, right? Um, I mean, this sounds a little bit like hoarding. Um, so, I mean, I'm not saying uh, you know that it is hoarding, and I'm and I'm not here to discuss. I mean, hoarding is a very you know is a very serious uh, mental illness, and and to be treated with respect. But th these are kind of the diagnostic criteria for hoarding, which give us an idea, like an idea of, of what it's like, what are the negative consequences of just accumulating stuff in our life. Now, we've, we're talking about clutter in our homes, but clutter can be more than just clutter in our homes. It can be clutter in my schedule. It can be clutter on, on my visa statement. When I look at my visa statement, there's a lot of clutter there. There's a lot of stuff that doesn't need to be on my visa statement. There could be clutter in my life. There's clutter, you know what? There's clutter in my prayers. There's stuff that I say that I don't really mean and I don't think God really cares to hear. So who benefits from that, right? And maybe it's time, maybe it's time to cut some of it off, right? And so here's just some ideas that says, you know, hoarding is a persistent difficulty of discarding or parting with possessions regardless of their actual value. It's a difficult, the difficulty is due to a perceived need to save the items and a distress associated with discarding them. 
and it results in the accumulation of possessions that congest and clutter living areas and substantially compromises their intended use. So now you have a broom, but you can't use the broom because you can't see the floor because you got so much stuff. But you want to use the broom, so you keep the broom for later so you can use it. But you can't use it because you can't see the floor, right? As a teenager, I forgot what color the carpet was in my room because it was always covered with clothes or junk or toys or books or whatever. I, I literally forgot that there was like a, a rug, like an area rug in my room, you know? Um, and it, it's a clinically significant distress or impairment in social, occupational, or other important areas of functioning due to, due to the hoarding. So, so it, you know, if you recognize yourself or I recognize myself in any one of these areas, it doesn't mean that you have necessarily that you, you have this disorder and should seek help um, unless it's really causing significant distress or impairment in social, occupational or other important areas of functioning. Now, there's a big, big difference between, um, between hoarding and being a collector. So uh, uh, people, people who, who are uh, unfortunately um, have this disorder of hoarding are usually very embarrassed of their possessions. Um, and when there's some reason why I, I, I need to visit or, or something or they need my help with something and I go over there always extremely apologetic and I'm so sorry and there's no room to sit. I know I have all this stuff literally piled from the floor to the ceiling and so on and I just can't let go of it and I know I really should and this whole monologue comes out. When you meet a collector, it's the other way around. If they're a collector of them, stamps, coins, hockey cards, I don't know, whatever, they're usually very proud of their collections and they want to show you their collections. So there's this and there's that, but the point is, 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 is the stuff in my life causing me to live and amplify, is my life amplified, enjoyed? Am I like, on, am I like high on life? And this stuff is contributing to that? Or is this stuff causing significant distress or impairment in social, occupational, or other important areas of functioning? This is the, this is the, clinch, the clincher here, right? Um, and, you know, if you come to sell a property, uh, you know, the first thing that, that an estate agent will tell you is you, you, you got to get rid of they told us when we came to sell our house, you gotta, you gotta previously, like not our current house, you have to get rid of 80% of your stuff everywhere, even in your closets. People wanna open a closet looks big and wide and got lots of space if there's like four things hanging. If there's 20 hanging, it looks like it's full. It looks like there isn't enough, enough room because there's no room for nothing, for anything, for anything else. People can't see the house if it's full, if it's full of stuff. I want to share with you a couple of, of stories from the Old Testament about people who made a point to cut something out for the greater good. There was this fellow named Joseph. Joseph was the unfortunate, unfortunate 11th brother of 12. And... Um, Let's just say his, his 10 brothers who were older than him didn't really, uh, didn't really like him. Um, I did a whole lot of nasty things to my sister, but I never sold her as a slave or threw her down a pit. We're not going to go into 
all of that, but Joseph had it pretty rough. He gets sold as a slave and he ends up in Egypt. And he ends up in Egypt and, and, and in Egypt, he works his way up as a slave to become the, mass, the, the, the chief servant in his master's household. And his master has put everything in his command. Everything, nothing happens unless Joseph hears about it, unless Joseph deals with it. Joseph is the one that moves everything. And this guy wasn't just some random, you know, uh, ancient Egyptian. This guy was like, like a general in the army or a high-ranking political figure, right? And his, his, his title was Potiphar. And the only thing that, that Joseph didn't have access to, rightly so, was Potiphar's wife. Well, Joseph was young and healthy and, you know, brilliant and the rising star. Who falls in love with him? Potiphar's wife. And she says to him, sleep with me. He says to her, look, Potiphar has put everything in his household in my command and he's trusted me completely. Listen to the next sentence he says. The whole thing is about Potiphar's trust in him. But the next thing he says is, how then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? He doesn't, he sees the respect and trust that Potiphar has for him and he should have back for Potiphar. And the respect he should have for his wife, obviously. But what he sees more evidently than that is that all of this is because of God giving him grace and favor in his master's eyes. So he says, if, if, if God gave me so much, how, could I, how can I do this sin against God? And so she grabs him by his cloak and he runs out. He just leaves his cloak behind and runs out. He isn't shy to cut it off. Daniel and his friends get taken away as servants. Another story of, of really smart guys who get taken away as servants and slaves. And they're supposed to be trained to be the, the viziers of, to be the viziers of, of, of the emperor. You know, the, the um, advisors of the emperor. And so, you know, he's, he's, uh, they're in training and in training, like, you know, everything is prepared for them, where they sleep, what they eat, all their education, everything, right? And so they bring, they bring food to Daniel and his friends who are Jewish and they have certain dietary laws. And so they go to the chief steward, the chief guy, and they tell him, look, you know, is it okay? We're not going to eat this. We're just going to eat vegetables and drink water. And that will be enough for us because that's, that's, what our, that's what our God says for us to do. Says, but Daniel determined that he would not defile himself by eating the king's food or by drinking his wine. So he asked the head of the palace staff to exempt him from the royal diet. And so, the, you know, the, the guy's on the fence. He doesn't know what to do. He says, if you, don't, if you look sick and if you look scrawny and whatever, I'm gonna have, they're going to have my head. He says, Daniel says to him, don't worry. Just give us a couple of weeks and then you can reassess. So he does. And after a couple of weeks, they're the brightest and the shiniest and the smartest of the bunch. Daniel is not shy to say, you know what? I need to cut this out. 
I need to cut this out of my, out of my life. One more example from the Old Testament, Moses. Moses was born at a time uh, of, of infanticide. He was born at a time when um, Pharaoh had decided to kill. He's, he decided that, uh, you, you know, like population control, there were way too many Hebrews um, in, uh, in Egypt. So he says, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do away with some of these Hebrews. So any male Hebrew born, you know, we're going to basically kill him, right? And his, his parents were courageous and they took him and they put him in a basket that they waterproofed and they sent him down the Nile. Moses ends up in the hands of the daughter of Pharaoh and she decides to adopt him and raise him as her own. And he's raised his whole life from, from infancy to adulthood as the grandson of the emperor of the world. Egypt was the superpower of the world at that time. And... Uh, when it comes to his attention that, that he is actually of he Hebrew lineage, right? He believes, he learns the promises that were given to those people and he believes in them. And so St. Paul is commenting on, on Moses and he says, it was by faith that Moses, when he grew up, refused to be treated as the grandson of the king, but chose to share the ill treatment. They were slaves, remember it? He chose to share the ill treatment with God's people instead of enjoying the fleeting pleasures of sin. He thought it was better. He thought it was better to suffer for the promised Christ than to own all the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking forward to the great reward that God would give him. Look, folks, archaeologists are still looking for all the treasures of Egypt. Sounds like Moses knew what all the treasures of Egypt were. And in his estimate, it was better to get the promises that God had promised than all the treasures of Egypt. And he chose to forfeit his royal lineage that he was adopted into. He chose to cut it off. There's plenty of other, there's plenty of other examples of people cutting things off. There's Queen Anna Simon in the 5th fifth, fifth century who was the empress of the, of, the, of the Roman or by that time Constantinopolitan Empire and started to live a life of holiness and then chose to live a life of poverty while being an empress and to dress in sackcloth and to sleep on the floor and to eat a very restricted diet and to fast all day, every day in secret where no one would know all this while she was still the empress living in the palace and then finally decided to forsake it all and to go to the desert to be alone with christ these are extreme examples of people who they didn't they didn't just wake up one morning and said you know what i'm gonna jump to this extreme right they they took a chip off they realized this this here doesn't belong, and they cut it off. And then the next, oh, this slice doesn't belong either, and they cut that one off. And oh, that little bit there doesn't belong, and they cut that one off as well, right? I'm going to tell you something that wasn't part of the script, okay? Look, the essential distinguishing feature of a Christian versus anyone else is supposed to be that they are the temple of God on earth. So 
The Spirit of God is to dwell in every single Christian. What does that mean? Okay, I'll give you an example, which will make it very, very clear and very simple. If you've watched any of the Jesus of Nazareth movies or stuff like that, and you've seen somebody who was demon-possessed, right? And they're flailing around and they're screaming and they're foaming at the mouth and all of this, right? Why are they doing that, okay? They're doing that because they're indwelt by a foreign spirit, a spirit which is not theirs, and they don't like it. And they, and, and, and they, and they hate it. And the spirit is is moving them to do things that they don't want to do. So there's a struggle. Now, people can be possessed by spirits and you see no struggle if the person is happy, hunky-dory with the spirit, no problem, right? And we see that, unfortunately, all the time. And until you irritate the spirit, you, you won't see any difference between that person and another, right? But the point is, is that the, the spirit being indwelt by a spirit in this, in the examples I'm giving a demon or by the spirit of God is for the, the living and moving and powerful spirit of God or in this or in the previous example, a demon to be living inside of someone. But the difference between a demon and God is that God respects you and God will never force himself upon you or force you to do anything in fact he's very gentle almost timid and so if there is any self inclination left inside of me he will stay silent and so if you want the Spirit of God as a Christian to be alive and working in you, to be real, to be moving you. The only answer is a complete removal of the self. Because as long as me and the Spirit of God say, hey, I'm hungry. Are you hungry? Yeah, I'm hungry. Okay, let's go, let's go eat somewhere. You know, and he says, Italian, I say, I don't know, I was feeling kind of Mexican, you know? He'll say, okay, Mexican it is. He will never say, oh, but we haven't had Italian in a long time. God's Spirit doesn't eat dinner and so on. But you get my point. As long as I'm given to my own self and my own desires and my own wants, I promise you, you will never experience the life of God in you. It's in those isolated moments that I really, I'm okay with anything. I'm really, Lord, left, Lord, right, Lord, up, Lord, down, whatever you want. No problem. Your wish is my command. It's in those moments that we experience the living Spirit of God. As we are preparing ourselves for the Pentecost, the Feast of the Descent of the Holy Spirit, and the, the Holy Spirit coming and filling the life of the church, this is the most essential message to prepare ourselves. God will not sit on a throne in your life with anyone else, you or anyone. If you want, and I've seen it with my own two eyes, in mature believers and in new believers, I've seen it left, right, and center. People who are alive with the Spirit of God. 
And the unifying factor in all of these people is their willingness to give up anything to have him. End off script. So how can we, like, look, nobody wants to cut it out, right? Nobody wants to cut it off. Nobody wants, nobody, nobody, nobody wants to cut an arm off. Nobody wants to cu cut a leg off. What can we do to kind of make it ah, a little bit less, a little bit less painful? What can we do to make it ourselves a little bit more inclined towards it? Next week, we're going to talk about what there is to gain. Today, we're going to talk about how we can set our minds, how we can put our minds on track. Wrapping up over here, just because it looks good doesn't mean it is good. We talked about that last week, okay? But it's, we all know this. We all know this, but we forget it. And I see, like, I see the, the, the Burger King Whopper, and I'm like, I want that, right? But I forget, I forget that not everything that looks good is gonna be good for me. And the easiest way that we can deal with this is try to remember something, etch it into your memory that you worked so hard for, that you wanted, that you loved, that you devoted yourself to, and you worked so hard. And when you got it, you were somewhat underwhelmed. When you got it, you realized actually it's not all it was made out to be, or maybe even worse, it's actually bad for me right? I have a funny story like that about a cell phone I really wanted. And I'll never forget that story. And that story is what prevents me. I'm a hard worker and I'm willing to kill myself to get something done. And that's the story that I always tell myself and remind myself of that. You know what? When you're working with God, you have to work hard, but you should expect supernatural power from him. So you don't need to be Superman, right? I've got it carve that story into your memory. It will make it easy to remind myself that not everything that looks good is good. Here's another tip. How does this thing affect me? Like, like, like in the di diagnosis of hoarding, right? Does it cause me to sin? How does it affect my thoughts, my emotions, my relationships, my finances, uh, my, my quality time, you know? And, and the amount of time that I have to spend on doing the things that I want to do. Look, God's plan for your life and mine, in, in his plan, all the pieces fit together. So if there's a piece that seems to kind of like gone wonky, right? And the, you know, the other five pieces seem to fit, but the sixth one seems to be like off. There's something wrong with that. Like it, it, it ought not to be like that. So we have to take a step back and ask ourselves, hold on a second, is this, you know, is this puzzle piece actually supposed to be part of my life? Or is it time, is it time to say goodbye to that puzzle piece, right? Last question to ask ourselves, what are you not doing because of the presence of this thing? You know, if you're questioning if a relationship is good for your life, well, what's the opportunity? What's the opportunity cost? Am I, is, is, is this relationship robbing me of the time that I would spend with family or with friends? Or is this hobby costing me money that I would probably, if, if, if I was, now I'm way too deep in. We always say that I'm too deep in to just to bail out now. But suppose you weren't. Suppose you were now at the crossroads of deciding to take up this hobby, this habit, this whatever, and you haven't yet decided to do it or not, what would the you who is already down the path say to you who hasn't made the decision yet? 
Would it be like, yeah, go for it. It's going to be great. It's going to make your life that much better. Or would it be like, um, maybe think twice about that because like that could suck the life out of you. If it's the latter, maybe it's time to cut it out. The last question to ask ourselves is what am I waiting for? What am I waiting for? Like you only live once. The day that passes doesn't come back. The hour that passes doesn't come back. I got to spend this time with you, which was a real joy and a real delight. And it was awesome. And the bad news is it, it, it's, uh, there's no rerun, you know? We're living this live, literally, right? I'm enjoying you. I hope you're enjoying being here. But it's not, it, 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 it's not, this isn't a dress rehearsal. This is it. This is the real thing, right? And this afternoon, well, that's going to be a one-hit wonder too. And this evening, tomorrow. So if my life is full of clutter, if I'm traveling with way too much luggage, and I think I'd just rather travel light, the big question is, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? As we stand to pray, let's each one of us ask ourselves, let's each one of us look inward and ask ourselves, what do I want to let go of today? Glory be to God forever and ever, amen.